Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Are you having trouble during the day if you're using it for sleep? Are you having problems with anxiety that are only partly controlled by the cannabis? Are, are you feeling depressed and do you need treatment for depression? Because even if the cannabis is somewhat helpful, there may be a burden of anxiety or depression symptoms in their life that could be helped if, if they get uh, a more traditional kind of treatment. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Dr. John Crystal. Dr. Crystal is the chair of psychiatry at Yale University and Yale New Haven Hospital. He directs the Yale Center for Clinical Investigation, the Center for the Translational Neuroscience of Alcohol, and the Neuroscience Division of the National Center for PTSD. Today on the show, we discuss the biggest risk people are overlooking with cannabis, why cannabis can be harmful for the brain and increase your risk of psychosis or schizophrenia, Dr. Crystal's thoughts on how cannabis impacts mental health and PTSD, why maintaining a healthy lifestyle is so important for your mental health, why cannabis is so addictive, whether or not the brain can heal itself after coming off of cannabis, and so much more. So let's get this conversation going, and welcome Dr. John Crystal to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Dr. Crystal, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Doug. It's great to be on. I'm super excited to, to chat with you, and I guess my first question for you is, given your background, given, given your role in your profession, what is your overall view on cannabis, specifically like marijuana right now? Sure. Well, my feeling about marijuana and cannabis is pretty much the way that I feel about every powerful psychotropic substance, which is that there are ways that it can be used safely and that limit the risk. And then there are ways uh, to use it that expose people to risks uh, that are can be a problem and you have to take it seriously. What do you think are some of the, the biggest risks that maybe people might be often overlooking when consuming uh, cannabis and marijuana? The biggest risk is probably very mundane, which is that if you're high and you drive, then you put yourself and people around you at risk. In, in that regard, it's, it's really not any different than any other intoxicating substance. And that's not really specific to the mechanism through which cannabis works. However, my colleagues and I have been studying uh, cannabis effects in people, and particularly the, the main psychoactive alkaloid called THC. Many people will have heard of this. And we found that if you infuse THC into healthy people, uh, that they may get paranoid or you know, have altered sensory experiences, things like that. And if you give THC to people who have schizophrenia, then you make their psychosis worse. 
So the idea that THC is completely benign is not accurate, which is that if you smoke enough cannabis, get enough THC into your system, then some people are going to have problems with paranoia, psychosis, delusions. And, and by psychosis, I mean hearing voices, seeing things, uh, having uh, false beliefs that seem real at the time. I think many people who have used cannabis recreationally may recognize in themselves or others periods where they or other people seem to get feel very anxious and uncomfortable, worry that the police might be out to get them or something like that. But if you notch that up a level, it can be a real problem. Yeah, there's a lot of research from what I've read about the relationship between cannabis and, and THC and their increased risks of like psychosis and stuff, specifically among men. Like, What does it do to the brain that would cause something like that? You know, the more we study, the more we learn. I would say that uh, cannabis affects the ability of the brain to tune the circuitry so that uh, on cannabis uh, communication, the brain gets a little noisy. This kind of loss of tuning of brain activity would be like having your radio become very staticky. Uh, the messages don't quite come through in the same way. Uh, we see this in people who get other kinds of drugs like ketamine or who have schizophrenia, where the brain circuits are, are not that well-tuned. And, you know, I think for most people, most of the time, it's not that big of a problem, you know, where people drink alcohol or engage in other activities, don't optimize the function of the brain. It's a problem if you try to do your schoolwork. It's a problem if you try to drive your car. It's a problem if you're uh, solving really important problems. And it may be a problem that goes beyond the time that you're using the cannabis if you're a teenager. In other words, if, if uh, young people who have developing brains are uh, using these substances, there are some data that suggests that it can affect brain development data from humans, but also from animals where they can control all the potential confounding factors pretty carefully. And it turns out to be one of the few things that people who are at risk can do that actually increase their risk for later psychosis or symptoms of schizophrenia if they happen to be vulnerable to the disorder. How has the makeup of cannabis like changed over the years? Because it seems like over recent years, you're hearing so much more about the severe negative impact specifically on the brain when it comes to marijuana. Yeah, this has been really interesting in a way that the older cannabis, the, the cannabis of the 1960s and 1970s, was really a, a blend of, of THC with other alkaloids that muted some of the THC effects. And one of those alkaloids which can mute THC effects is another alkaloid that people know a lot about, which is cannabidiol, uh, CBD. And, and cannabidiol... Many people have the impression that cannabidiol is just a weaker form of, uh, of cannabis, but it's really a very different substance. Cannabis works in our brain through a kind of trick of nature, which is that we have a chemical system in the brain called the endocannabinoid system. In other words, our brain, our body, is making chemicals that signal through the same receptors that THC and you know, cannabis signal through. And so just like 
our bodies don't make heroin, but we make endogenous opiates, and heroin binds to the receptors for endogenous opiates. So our bodies make endocannabinoids that have interesting names like anandamide and mimics their action at the receptor, except it doesn't exactly mimic the action because our endogenous cannabinoids are designed just to ping the receptor, go on and off very rapidly, and to be very tightly regulated. But when THC binds to the receptor, it binds and stays in a way that's not very physiological and produces some aberrant effects in in nervous signaling. So anyway, THC stimulates the cannabis receptors, and cannabidiol blocks the CB1, cannabinoid receptor 1, and thereby can make uh, cannabis more tolerable, the effects more mild. As uh, people have looked for more and more intense experiences from cannabis, they've gotten strains of cannabis that are have m- relatively more THC and relatively less cannabidiol. So in some ways, it's not that complicated. The, the strains are stronger because that's what people wanted, but they've, at the same time, they made the cannabis a little bit more risky. And so what are some of the risk factors, in, in your opinion, that could lead to somebody developing some sort of psychosis or schizophrenia from excessive uh, cannabis or marijuana use? First, probably everybody has some vulnerability point. In other words, if you use enough cannabis, almost everybody will can get to the point where you have some symptoms of psychosis transiently that go away after the drug effects wear off. We know that the the heritable risk for schizophrenia is very complicated. So there are hundreds of genes uh, that have a tiny effect on the risk of developing schizophrenia. And most people in the population have some of these risk genes. Some have a lot of them, or, or risk variant, gene variants. Some have a lot of them and are at substantial risk of developing schizophrenia. Other people have very few of them, you might say, are relatively protected. But since we don't know, you know, we don't screen everybody in the population to determine what's called their polygenic, it means the combination of many genes. Since we don't screen people for their polygenic risk for schizophrenia, we really don't know who among us is at relatively more risk or relatively lower risk. I mean, we know that if they have schizophrenia in their family, maybe they're you know, in that way, they're a little bit higher risk. That's only relevant for a small percentage of the population. So without really careful genetic testing, we don't really know who's at risk, and that's the problem. Cannabis, for someone who's at high risk, is like walking out in a field of landmines. You know, everything looks fine until you have a bad experience and have some difficulty bouncing back from it. So I think uh, people who are at risk may be sensitive to lower effects, low effects of lower doses of cannabis and, and may have more adverse and or persisting effects of, of regular cannabis use. And so I guess what you're saying is the only way to guarantee that you won't develop that is just to be sober or abstinent from it, correct? Yeah, I would say that there are things you can avoid and things you can't avoid, right? You can't avoid your genetic makeup. And oftentimes you can't avoid stresses in your life that may make it a little harder. But I would say that if you've had some bad experiences on cannabis, that should be a warning. It's hard to tell young people who want to try everything out in the world that's available to them, never try cannabis, never try alcohol, 
never try cigarettes. I mean, we can say that, but I don't think many teenagers will listen to us. But, but we want them to listen to their own experience. We want them to pay attention to themselves. If they have trouble regulating their drinking, uh, have a bad experience on alcohol, we want them to watch out for alcohol. If they have a bad experience on cannabis, we want them to watch out and avoid cannabis. Pay attention to the signals that their own body's giving them and, and protect themselves from getting into uh, difficulties later. Any advice for parents to help their kids develop self-awareness around their, their habits with these substances? I, I think it would be great for parents to have the same kind of discussions with their kids that we're having right now. I don't think that they need to go into the details of the polygenic risk for schizophrenia and the hundreds of genes that that may be like sleeping time bombs that, uh, you know, uh, and all of that. I think that just makes people upset and afraid. But they can talk to their kids about paying attention and looking out for themselves and for their friends who may have difficulty. A lot of teenagers don't really want to listen to adults about, about this, but they may listen to their classmates or friends or particularly older friends and hear the message that they have to be careful, particularly if they have a bad experience with these uh, substances. And so would you say that kids and adolescents are more at risk to develop some sort of psychiatric disorder from cannabis and marijuana versus, say, an adult who's over 25, 30 years old? I would say that the kind of the stimulation of these kinds of persisting psychoses is a young person's problem primarily. It's not that cannabis, regular cannabis use isn't associated with problems in older people too, but they're a little bit different. So for example, in, in adults, what you see more is that people who are vulnerable to anxiety may have panic attacks triggered by cannabis use. People who are using cannabis all the time may find that, or when I say all the time, I mean m many times a week, that they may feel uh, more likely to feel depressed or hopeless about, about things or not very motivated to uh, be engaged with their friends or uh, colleagues at work. That's a, a more subtle effect, an important one as well. But the one that really, I think, makes people like myself who studied psychosis very concerned about the, are these syndromes that, like, uh, psychosis that may not always go away when people stop using the cannabis. Before we get into psychosis, because I know that's a whole other rabbit hole, and I definitely want to touch on that and how people can recover from that, you hear a lot of people say that the reason they're, they're using cannabis and marijuana today is to help with their anxiety, is to improve their mental health. And yet, from what I've read, the research all says the opposite um, as far as the impact on mental health. Why do you think that so many adults are coming out and saying that it's really having this profound effect on their anxiety? Well, I, I have to respect the things that people say that they find helpful. If, if someone says, I've used cannabis for 10 years and it's the only thing that I've found that's enabled me to sleep at night or made it possible for me to be in, in rooms with other people because my anxiety is so high. My question is almost always for that person, what other kinds of treatments have you tried? What has worked for you and what hasn't worked for you? Because I think that it's common for people to use cannabis and alcohol, and sometimes nicotine, to deal with problems that might be 
uh, treated uh, in a safer and more effective way uh, through psychotherapy or, or uh, some medications. That being said, there is interest in the possibility that certain anxiety syndromes might be helpful for certain kinds of conditions. But my, my view of this area of research, and, and, and there, are, there are many people who are interested in companies that are interested in developing cannabis or cannabis derivatives as direct treatments. I am very interested in a set of drugs that are related to cannabis, which um, I think may be a little bit more physiological for the brain. In other words, I said earlier that the endogenous cannabinoids bind very briefly uh, to the brain, and, 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 and that's the kind of way in which the brain uses these endocannabinoids to signal. There are a family of drugs called FA inhibitors. FA is an enzyme that metabolizes the endocannabinoids. And so if you take this drug, you're juicing up the endocannabinoid signaling. So there may be cannabis drugs that work uh, without actually being a constituent of cannabis. And so would these be free of THC? Because I feel like that's what, I, from what I understand, causes a lot of the adverse side effects. Right. So it would enhance the stimulation of the receptor it produces many of the same beneficial kinds of behavioral effects in animal models. It's been tested very little in humans so far. Uh, you know, I think it is one promising direction. And one of the interesting complexities we have in interpreting the safety of effectiveness of self-medication with cannabinoids is that we have two kinds of data. On the one hand, we have the self-reports from people that, like you and I have heard, that say that these are medications that help them. And then we have the large-scale epidemiology data. And the large-scale epidemiology data, for example, for post-traumatic stress disorder, suggests that cannabis use in post-traumatic stress disorder is associated with worse clinical status and worse clinical outcomes. It may be because people who have more PTSD are more likely to seek cannabis, and that confounds the interpretation of these data. And we don't have the kind of definitive, what we call gold standard clinical trials data yet with cannabinoids to help us know whether these are effective, not effective, risky, tolerable. Uh, so it's still very early days. And, and so I'd kind of, for people who are already using these medications in, in ways that they find very helpful, I would give them the same message that I would, gave to the teenagers, which is, you need to really pay attention to not only the parts of the cannabis effects that make you feel good, but whether it's coming at a cost for you. Are, are you having trouble during the day if you're using it for sleep? Are you having problems with anxiety that are only partly controlled by the cannabis? Are, are you feeling depressed and do you need treatment for depression? Because even if the cannabis is somewhat helpful, there may be a burden of anxiety or depression symptoms in their life that could be helped if, if they get uh, a more traditional kind of treatment. You'll hear some people that are using cannabis and marijuana for anxiety say things like, well, it's natural. I don't want to take medication. Like what I'm doing is at least natural, blah, blah, blah. And along those same lines, for somebody who maybe is not convinced to go down the medication route, but they're like, all right, after hearing Dr. Crystal talk, Maybe I'll try to find some better alternatives to deal with this stuff. 
Have you found anything that's on the more holistic, natural side, whether it be exercise, meditation, et cetera, that could help give people the same type of effect that the cannabis might be giving them? I, I'm really glad you raised this point because I, I think a healthy lifestyle is good for you no matter what you're struggling with, whether it's heart disease, whether it's uh, depression, whether it's um, diabetes, the kinds of things you might say that in a way depression is a whole body disorder. Anxiety can be a whole body disorder because there's there are disease-related processes in your body often called inflammation. The, the, the same thing that, that contributes to your coronary artery disease might be contributing in your brain to depression. Healthy diet, exercise, good sleep, and active as opposed to a sedentary life. All of these things are helpful as people deal with anxiety and depression. You know, sometimes cannabis use can make things worse because it's, it can be a part of a sedentary lifestyle. So hanging around, sitting on the couch, using a lot of cannabis, spending your day that way, doesn't get you to exercise, doesn't get you out with people, doesn't get you to, you know, everybody knows about the munchies. It, it may not get you to a... a, a a healthy diet and and all of you know um so i think overall the treatment of anxiety and depression probably begins with a healthy lifestyle that's augmented with psychotherapy and maybe medications if needed and going into some like some more alternative solutions for depression i know like you've been a pioneer in using you know finding ketamine to help as with with depression and people might maybe read your background and be like, wait a second, like he's promoting ketamine. And yet we're talking about some of the negative side effects of marijuana. And obviously ketamine has become very popular as of late at, at, from the medicinal and clinical benefits. Talk about the differences between ketamine and, and cannabis and why ketamine seems to be much more effective um, from, a, from a clinical point of view. First, I feel the same way about ketamine that I do about cannabis, which is it's a drug with powerful behavioral effects has to be treated with a lot of respect. That's why we only administer a ketamine in the clinic and at a kind of very specific dose. If you give a dose of ketamine that's too low, it doesn't work. And if you get give a dose that's too high, it doesn't work. And if you take it every day, like recreational ketamine users do, it may increase your likelihood of feeling depressed rather than working for depression. But the, the bottom line is, is that it's now over 25 years of research on, on the antidepressant effects of ketamine so that we are pretty confident that we have uh, some understanding about how ketamine can work for depression. The first thing is that the placebo-controlled research shows that it's, it can be very effective for people who have uh, severe depression that has not responded to other antidepressant medications. And that's really important because a lot of people get discouraged about the possibility of getting effective depression treatment and look to other kinds of substances like cannabis to deal with the lack of effectiveness of the medications that they receive for their depression. And we don't know whether ca cannabis works for treatment-resistant depression, but we do know that for many people with treatment-resistant depression, uh, ketamine can be effective. The second thing is that we don't give ketamine every day. 
what we do is give a dose, start twice a week, and then we give it less and less frequently over time so that people who are on it long term are likely to get it every three weeks, once a month. And the goal of the treatment is not to keep the ketamine in the system. It's a very short-acting drug. You might say one of the things that ketamine does is help to recruit the brain's own resilience mechanisms to alleviate the symptoms of depression. What I mean by that is that people who have chronic severe depression, they lose some of the synaptic connections in the brain. Their networks work less efficiently. Their uh, emotion circuits not functioning so well. And, And we can show within 24 hours of a single dose of ketamine in animals and we've recently collected some pilot data. Irina Esterless and Sophie Holmes collected some pilot data in people that indicate that ketamine can rapidly regrow the synaptic connections of the brain. And it's building on the brain's own resilience mechanism to, to do that by increasing the levels of a, of a substance called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, but it's really a kind of a nerve growth factor that your brain makes that is a, a resilience mechanism in the brain. This is one of the one of the ironies, which is here you have a drug, clearly a chemical entity, not present in nature. But if you take it, it recruits your own your brain's own natural resilience mechanism. And so you ha- it's kind of the paradox there that seems to be how ketamine works. And then I guess just to provide a little bit more context, how is the structure of ketamine as far as how it's classified as a drug, um, et cetera, different than, than cannabis? Cannabis is a, it binds to the cannabis receptor. It's, it's got its own chemical structure. Te- tetrahydrocannabinol is, the, is THC. And ketamine is a dissociative anesthetic, which works predominantly by blocking signaling for the main information highway in the brain, which is the glutamate system, like 90% of the synapses in the cerebral cortex use glutamate as the chemical messenger. And one subtype of the glutamate receptor is called the NMDA receptor, and ketamine blocks that receptor. And then you mentioned that in many ways, when you're doing ketamine in a clinical setting, it's very short term. And then like after that, people kind of go on, on, on their way. And I'm sure there's some sort of like long-term care treatment plan to help them make sure that their depression continues to get better and their mental health continues to get better. What types of things are you advocating for these people to do like after they um, receive a ketamine treatment? I think it's really important to think of something like ketamine or if they eventually get approved MDMA and psilocybin as interventions but not necessarily the whole treatment. It's important for for people who are getting treatment for mental illness uh, to have somebody looking out for their overall care, integrating the psychotherapy and the medications and whatever whatever, whatever kinds of treatments they're getting, just like you have a family doctor uh, who looks out for your overall medical health and who sends you to a surgeon if you need a surgeon, sends you to a heart doctor if you need a heart doctor, et cetera. So I think of the ketamine as one of those procedures that you get if you need it. And uh, oftentimes it's given by a specialist who collaborate with the uh, primary mental health clinicians 
uh, around the long-term care. Some people will only need a month or two, a few months of, of ketamine treatment, and they'll be back on their way, often continuing some kind of antidepressant and, and psychotherapy. It turns out really need some kind of intermittent uh, exposure to ketamine to keep the depression at bay. We'd like to have a treatment that de didn't need that. It, it works that way for some people, but many people need some kind of longer-term treatment. Another thing that people will say when it comes to cannabis and comparing it to other substances and being like, well, at least I'm not drinking alcohol. Alcohol is, is legal. It's a far more dangerous substance, blah, blah, blah. And they'll often like use it as an, as an excuse because they're like, well, everybody else around me is drinking. I'm at least doing this. What are your thoughts on cannabis as it compares to and relates to alcohol and the, the negative and positive effects? Well, the first thing is that the most dangerous thing that people do with alcohol is drive while intoxicated. And probably the most dangerous thing that people do with cannabis is drive while intoxicated. And that way, the, the most serious risk may not be that, that different. What gets, what gets people into trouble with alcohol is compulsive heavy alcohol use. And that's because if you if you're a heavy drinker, in other words, you drink more than four or five glasses of alcohol multiple times a week, you start to take a toll on your body, your liver, your heart, your lungs, even your brain. That adds up over years of heavy drinking. Many of us know somebody who became seriously ill as a result of long-term heavy drinking. It's true that cannabis is not as toxic in that way as alcohol, long-term alcohol, heavy drinking. But for most people who use alcohol, they're not using it in that way. We have very powerful social conventions that uh, help people to regulate their alcohol use and keep it in the low social range. And when alcohol is used in that range, it seems to be relatively safe and well-tolerated on a lifelong basis, as most of us know, most of the people we know have used it in that way. And so there's probably a parallel there for cannabis too, which is the person who's having a little bit of cannabis recreationally, socially, uh, and not driving while intoxicated um, is probably not having that much risk. The problems, uh, heavy use, repeated use, and then, of course, people who are smoking cannabis and smoking all the time are exposed to the respiratory effects of smoking, which everybody knows are bad for you. And again, I, when we're talking about cannabis use, we're obviously talking about it in the context and making sure that it's, it's legal and that you're at the proper age and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Going back to psychosis as it relates to marijuana and, and cannabis, like, let's just say like that somebody is in a state of psychosis, maybe they're receiving psych psychiatric care, they're in some sort of medical setting. What does the, the healing process look like from there? I mean, or is it, is it not reversible? Well, for most people, it's reversible. I mean, for most people, it's probably every big city in the United States, every weekend, you have people in the emergency room who are having a psychotic or severe anxiety episode on cannabis. And for most people, just letting them sober up is, an, is enough. 
But for the people who have persisting psychosis, they need more support. I mean, there are many reasons that a person might have a, a, a more pronounced psychotic response. Maybe they don't have schizophrenia. Maybe they have a vulnerability to manic depressive illness or bipolar disorder. Or maybe they have a history of severe trauma and had a psychotic episode related to re, reliving their traumatic experience during cannabis exposure. So there are a lot of ways that people um, uh, can become more psychotic on cannabis or have a more persisting psychosis. So most of these problems are just handled at home, right? So most people who have a bad experience in cannabis, the family will stay up uh, with them until they settle down. But the main thing is to make sure that there's follow-up. So if a person has a really bad experience, particularly if they're having persisting unusual experiences, unusual thoughts, that somebody's looking out to make sure that they can get connected uh, for more support. You know, for many people, that may involve uh, starting uh, antipsychotic medication if they're really having persisting psychosis. So have you found that excessive cannabis use and, and getting into a state of psychosis can lead to developing things like bipolar disorder? Well, these are more epidemiologic data. I mean, so, so what happens is that when, when we work at the, in, the personal level, the individual level, yes, I've, I've seen many, many people who uh, had a first episode of a psychiatric problem, severe anxiety, uh, bipolar disorder, uh, schizophrenia. In, in that context, I can't, I can't really tell whether the cannabis is causing the problem or making it just making it worse. But the large-scale epidemiologic data are the data that we rely on that suggests that there is some increased risk for, for psychosis among people, persisting psychosis among people who use cannabis extensively. And it's one of the few things that does it. Would you like to see more like awareness and messaging around some of the stuff that we're talking about as cannabis relates to psychosis and, and schizophrenia like at some of these, you know, when people are talking about like cannabis, I mean, cause I, I feel like there, there's tons of risks that people know about with cigarettes, but I feel like what we're talking about maybe isn't as known to the average person. Yes, I would. I, th I think that, that this is a really important part of the public discussion about uh, legalized cannabis. And it's a part that often is not well represented in the public discussion. Clearly, cannabis has been historically demonized. And, and so uh, the credibility of medical science has probably not been helped by being overly negative about the risks of cannabis and, and scaring people in ways that uh, didn't resonate with their own experiences of cannabis use. But on the other hand, it's really important not to overlook these risks and not to take them seriously. We're, we're trying to help people protect themselves from bad things that could happen to them. And the best way that we can protect them is that they, their family and friends know about the risks so, so that they can avoid them in some cases, but so that they can get the appropriate help on the other. Why is uh, marijuana seem to be so psychologically addictive for people? I think that there are a couple of reasons. One is that people are stressed. People are under just amazing amounts of stress. It's hard for a lot of people just to get through the day. And some people make it through the day, 
but are so riled up from their day that they can't relax when they get home. And so cannabis has become one of the ways that people relax. It can be more of a problem if the anxiety about going to work or the, or, or the tensions of work make people get high before they go to work. Because sometimes, particularly if they used a lot of cannabis, they won't perform very well at work and they can get themselves into a negative cycle. But I think, number one, we're becoming more and more aware of the impact of anxiety and depression of the lives, inadequately treated anxiety and depression. That's just a natural setup under times when we're under so much stress for people to uh, compulsively use cannabis. The second thing, and this I think is true about almost every addictive drug, which is people may start using cannabis for all kinds of good reasons. I can't sleep, I can sleep on cannabis. I, I feel tense around people, I can relax with cannabis. They have all kinds of great reasons why they started using it. And then when they use it very regularly, it's basically one thing, which is it's a habit. When they anticipate being under a stressful situation, instead of taking a deep breath and going for a walk, they look to the cannabis. When they don't, when they can't sleep at night, instead of counting to 10 or deep breathing or instead of turning off their cell phone, their mobile phone a half hour before they go to sleep, turning off the TV, giving themselves time to relax, they use cannabis. They're sometimes using cannabis habitually and short-circuiting their own natural capacity for resilience. Cannabis addiction like any addiction, there's just the pure addiction part to it, which is it becomes an automatic part of your life and, and you use it in ways that uh, may not be adapted. We talked about some better alternatives when it comes to dealing with like long-term anxiety and other mental health issues, whether it be psychotherapy, medication, um, making sure you're taking care of your health and having a healthy lifestyle. In the short term, like you just alluded to a few minutes ago, that people are feeling stressed, they are feeling anxious, and in the moment, it's just become sometimes a habit to do something like cannabis. Have you found anything in, in either in, in research or in your clinical experience that's been effective for people when they're having a stressful day and they need to do something in that moment to help them self-regulate? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there, there's a, a whole field of psychology that helps people get in touch with themselves and learn how to relax and practice that. Yoga, meditation, mindfulness, these are, are examples of strategies. Going out for a walk, getting a cup of coffee just to talk to other people. There's so many ways that people can adaptively cope with the stress. And since we're, you know, coming out of the pandemic, one of the great stressors, one of the great things that makes life so much more stressful is feeling isolated and cut off for other people and getting together and being around other people is really important part of this resilience process as well. And I know you, know, you, do, you work a lot with like PTSD and we talked about it earlier in that cannabis, sometimes people might think of it as an effective treatment for that, but it's in reality, it's, it's likely not an effective 
um, treatment. And for people who are dealing with some severe PTSD and they've tried therapy, they've tried different things, they haven't seemed to find anything that works for them, any recommendations on some things that they could look into before trying cannabis? The first thing I'd say is that we, we really don't know whether cannabis is effective for PTSD because we don't have the kinds of clinical trials that would tell us one way or the other. But what we do see are the casualties. We hear the reports of, from people who say it helps, and we see the casualties when it, when it makes things worse. You know, I, I, the, what I would say is it's really important for folks to be engaged in treatment. Oftentimes, that's some kind of psychotherapy. And there are some pretty good evidence-based psychotherapies for PTSD now. And these have been rolled out throughout the VA system. And there are training materials for therapists who are outside of the VA because there's a lot of PTSD that's not in the VA, right? There's sexual assault, there's physical assault, exposure to violence, uh, the kinds of things that sadly in, in, in our country people may be exposed to in, in their everyday lives. You, you don't have to be a warrior to see violence in, in, in this world, sadly. But there's a, a lot of good kinds of supportive techniques. And there are some medications that can be helpful, both depression, anxiety parts of it, as well as uh, the insomnia. Based on your knowledge and expertise, I mean, I heard a lot as a kid that, you know, pot rots your brain and pot destroys your brain and kills brain cells and stuff like that. Um, do you think that for the most part, people's brains can heal back to some level of, of normalcy after they're in recovery from cannabis use? I think so. You know, there's, there are d data about, about long-term sobriety in many people who use cannabis compulsively, and, and it seems to be, uh, you know, a lot of good outcomes. But the reality is that we don't yet have an effective medication for cannabis addiction, and there have been very few uh, treatments tested. So this is really an area of important public health priority to get more research about the optimal treatment of cannabis use disorder to help people get off the bandwagon of compulsive use of, of cannabis. I think that's really very important. So is what you're saying, we need something like Suboxone, which is used to getting, getting off opiates, something like that for cannabis? Something like Suboxone or... Uh, Vivitrol? Vivitrol, something like that, exactly. Last question I have for you is, we've talked a lot about cannabis. You've mentioned a few things that you're like, we need more research here. We need more clinical trials there. If you were to pick like one area of research, if you could pick something to do a clinical trial on tomorrow regarding cannabis, what would you want to do? Well, I'd like to follow up on, on a finding from one of my colleagues here at Yale, Dr. Cyril Deepak D'Souza, and he conducted the first major trial that I'm aware of, of this FA inhibitor as a potential treatment for cannabis use disorder. I think that's a very promising treatment, as I said, because it recruits your, your endogenous cannabis system, your internal cannabis system to try to suppress the urge to, uh, to use cannabis. So I, I think to me, that seems like a promising direction. Dr. Crystal, I wanted to thank you so much for your time. I think the audience is going to get a lot out of this conversation. Well, wonderful. It's been a real pleasure to talk. Likewise, and thanks again. And I hope you all enjoyed this conversation with me and Dr. John Crystal.